Hi, I'm Rob Langton from Development Ready. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. Well, we've got the pleasure this afternoon of having with us Norm Ricks. Norm, you've been an absolute stalwart of the Gold Coast development community. You've, uh, you've lived here, I think, for, for your whole life. Tell me about your upbringing here on the Gold Coast. Well, it was a different place to what it is now. When I was growing up as a kid, it's like a little village, actually. You knew everybody knew everybody else. Went to the local school, which was a state school. We would play cricket during the cricket season and football during the football season. There was always tennis in between sort of things. So it was a great place to grow up. Everybody knew everybody. And were there many tourists back then, or was it all oh, locals? no, no, no. The tourists in those days were the Westerners coming down because it was, a, I think, a dollar a dollar a pound. Sorry, not a dollar, a pound a pound for wool in those days. So those Western graziers were quite wealthy. And as a kid, they'd travel a long distance and the cars would be dusty, so two or three of us would get together and wash their cars for them. Never had a driver's licence, of course. <laughs> Just take the cars, wash them and return them back to them. It's a wonderful place. So would you say that was your first job? Uh, yes, it was, and one that I continued to, into as I grew older. I always used to wash cars on a, on a Sunday. As a matter of fact, I used to wash Eric Gavin's car. He was the local member, and he had two big cars, a Humber Super Snipe and a Humber Hawk. Two big cars, and I used to wash and polish them every Sunday up until I was about 17 years of age. So you finished school, what did you do next? Well, um, my dad passed away in 1946 when I was 11 and that left a real hole in the family. And I left school when I was 13, started work when I was 14 and I went to work for my father's uh, boss, my, his former employee, er, and uh, I was a Bowser boy. But I loved being a Bowser boy and it was a Ford dealership but it's an unusual Ford dealership. He used to sell uh, Ford motor cars, obviously. He had the Victor Lawnmower franchise, uh, the franchise, believe it or not, for Melbourne Star push bikes, Chrysler radios, washing machines, Hoover vacuum cleaners, you know it. And uh, whatever, he, whatever you could get, he had there as part and parcel of a Ford dealership. And so where did the, the interest in property come from? Well. I think, I think it came from when I was pumping petrol in those days. The real estate agents used to come in. You always had a nice car and they were always pretty, pretty good blokes, you know, first people you could speak to. It seemed to me that as a young lad, they impressed me. So I thought to myself, when I get a bit older, I'd like to go into real estate. That's where it started, I think. And how long were you in real estate for and where were you working? Well, I was very, very fortunate because uh, Laurie Wall was called Mr Millions. He would probably have been at that time the number one agent probably in Queensland. And I was lucky enough to get an introduction to him when I was 24. And I knew nothing about real estate at that time. However, I had a, an interview with um, Laurie. And Laurie said, look, I haven't got a spot available for you just yet, but when I have, I'll let you know. And a couple of weeks later, he let me know and I then started for Laurie Wall. He taught me real estate. He was the best of the best. And how long were you involved in real estate before you got into development? I was only with Laurie about 18 months, actually. I remember the first day I walked into my office and it's got my sign over the door and 
I sat down in the chair and Laurie came in. He said, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm waiting for a buyer. And he said, what's wrong with you? You're a bit thick or something. He said, you don't wait for buyers. He said, you go out and find them. Well, I said, where do I find them? He said, you've got friends, haven't you? You've got relatives, haven't you? You know people? Go and find a buyer. And he picked up this board that just happened to be there. And he said, here's a new estate. It's called Hillview Estate. It's out there off Narang Road. 350,000, 350, sorry, 350 pounds a lot, 10% deposit, balance over seven years at 7%. So I went out there and found it. And yeah, I sold a couple to my dentist. I did sell a couple of blocks to uh, a guy that we grew up together. And within, oh, I don't know, three months perhaps, I'd sold the estate out. Used to sit on the estate Saturdays and Sundays. But that was my introduction, and he sat on Chevron Island as well, by the way. That was my introduction to real estate. And what was your first development that you undertook? Where was it? First development was basically spec building. You've got to understand I had no money. I had no money at all. And when I left Laurie, I went out on my own, and I had at that time about six or seven salesmen, but no real money to do any development. But I had three or four good friends. And I put a deal to them and the deal was, look, the market's red hot for spec homes. I haven't got the money to do it. You guys have. So what I'll do is I'll do all the work. I'll buy the land, it'll go in your name. And then I'll do the building. Everything's got to go through my real estate agency. That's the actual sale of the land and the sale of the house. And what we'll do, we'll go 50-50. And then that was the start of me doing a develop developments. And where did you go from there? So you're starting to do spec homes. What came next? The houses were going so well, because I cut all the fat out of it, actually. You get a concreter in to do the concreting. Well, what I do is I've got the concreter to do the concrete work, but I'd supply the mesh and the chairs and the concrete. I cut the fat all the way right out of all the houses. And so I was able to sell my houses very, very quickly indeed. I was just a little bit under the market price. And within six months, I didn't need the partnerships any longer. I got out on my own then, I had enough money. And uh, that's when Rick's Homes was born. And then we started selling and building houses absolutely everywhere. So I started basically spec building. And then after that, three-storey walk-ups. And then, you know, you get bigger and bigger. I've always been a person that goes one step at a time. And then after that, we started doing a bit of commercial work and then subdivisions and now we do shopping centres. So it's just a bit of a progression, really. And tell us about the business today. What are some of the projects you got underway? Generally speaking now, we turn bushland into housing lots, uh, old golf courses into housing lots. We don't do building now ourselves. We have a tie-up with a lot of the uh, recognised builders. So we produce the land for them. Most of our land is now sold on put and call. We've just completed one on Amity Road, 207 lots there, all sold. And uh, when I say all sold, they're all sold, but quite a lot of them are still arranging finance. We just completed oh, about 18 months ago, Pimpermar City, the most beautiful shopping centre you'll ever see. Magnificent landscaping nice wide car parks, all shade covers, big wide walkways, great tenants, wonderful tenancy mix. 
And tell us about Pimpermar City. How did that opportunity come about? Had you had a focus on or a desire to want to build shopping centres or it just came up? No, no, that was the shopping, second shopping centre we built as we progressed over the years. You see, I'm 85 now. I've been developing now since I was about 25. So over that 60 years, you know, we've progressed and got bigger and bigger. But because I had that original start with my friends, and I've always had a very, very good bank, National Bank. National Bank got me going. Uh, I remember walking into the National Bank and all I wanted was a thousand pound to build my first home. And the bank manager said to me, look, you've got no security. Basically, you've got no chance of getting the 1,000. However, I think the bank thinks you've got a bit of a future, so we'll lend you the thousand pounds. That's what happened with that. Now we're self-funding, and because we're self-funding, as we have been for a long time now, so now we're able to handle basically anything at all. We're always looking for more and more stock. However, having then now done the spec building and having done subdivisions, now we've got into commercial development because we move where the market is and the market is with commercial development. Our shopping centre we've just built is not like a Westfield. I wouldn't like to own a Westfield at the present time because the model is very old. You know, the car parks they have is 2.5 wide. They've got the boom gate. They've got the food court. You know, that's, that's been a good model for them that's worked many years. No, our shopping centre is different. 2.7 wide car parks, all, as I said, all shade covers. And then we've, basically, we're a district centre. We have there the uh, service station, the coffee shops, the Kentucky Fried Chicken, the Hungry Jacks, the doctor, uh, the, the radiologist, the gymnasium, we've got the tavern. We've got very, very good tenants like Coles, Aldi, uh, Chemist Warehouse, Best and Less, National Bank, and so we go all the way right through. So what it means in actual fact, because I think the Westfield model is now old, outdated, I believe we've got the new model now. And strangely enough, I've just done a deal with David DePilla from Home Consortium. I had lunch with him a couple of times, really, very decent guy. And he is of the same uh, feeling I am. Basically, that's the way of the future for commercial development. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's David and Homeco that uh, yes, redid the, the master's stores it, and turned them into it, those. It is, yeah. it is. Fantastic. And just on Pimpermar, what's been the the um, desire to to invest there? What did you see? What's the uh, the impetus for, for developing there? Well, what I tell you is almost unbelievable, I suppose, but what I tell you is the truth. Where Pippamar City is now located, it was an old cane farm. In actual fact, it was a swamp. But it always would have been and should have been a commercial site, but it was zoned rural. So to get Pimpermar City as you would see it today, we had to start very, very small to try and get it through the council. So in a rural area, you can have a service station and a car wash. So we started with a service station and a car wash. And then we went back again, and then we ended up getting uh, a Zarafis drive-through coffee. And then we got, then we got through, I think it was uh, Coles Express Petrol. And then of course we finished it off then with the gymnasium, Subways and Domino's Pizza. While that was happening, 
we were then negotiating with Mervac for their site, which is an adjoining site that had the blue dot. So because Mervac had the blue dot, we then joined on to that and made our site much larger. But the original site was something like 23, 24 hectares. And I got it for $900,000 in a, in a public auction. People say, you know, what's going on here? But it was a public auction. That's where I got it. Then I sold off a portion of it. I think I sold off 16 or 17 hectares to King's College. And then that left me, I think it was for about six or seven hectares. And I bought Mervac's site next door, which did have the blue dot. And of course, because they had the blue dot, then it was go for me for the rest of the entire development. Now we've still got four hectares, uh, which we have to develop. But now it seems that, it sounds like I'm a lucky person, but I'm not really. I've got the railway station now, and that should be opening in the next couple of years. So now our zoning will probably change to a TOD, Transport Orientated Development. With comes the TOD, we could, could come now seven-storey, eight-storey buildings out there at Pimpermar because of the railway station. And what are the fundamentals you look for in any site or, or either in the projects you've done now or in the past? What are, what are the metrics you look for? The secret of making money is always in the buy. It's never in the sale. You've got to buy right. If you can buy right, it doesn't matter what happens with the market, the market can move. And if the market moves, if you buy right, you can always sell. That's the first thing I look at. Secondly, uh, I don't know if I can say this, but perhaps I shouldn't say it, but I will. I should have a card, and my card would say we turn shit into gold, and that's what happens with us. If you look at our developments, and I wish you would do that, you'll see they're absolutely bloody beautiful. Uh, a lot of our subdivisional land, if you look at the, the land which we buy, for instance, the one we did in California Creek, it was very, very low-lying, and um, normally you wouldn't, you wouldn't develop that, but we love that type of thing. We put a lot of thought and effort into that. We have detention basins basically for the water to be retained. We have uh, extensive landscaping going through that development there. And when it was finished, it is absolutely magnificent. Uh, we had a, a, another site which we've done is the sanctuary up near the uh, Koala Sanctuary in Logan. That's one of our estates. That was one we had a lot of trouble with, with the council. And um, to overcome that problem, we gave the Koala Sanctuary next door quite a lot of our land. Land, I may add, is probably worth eight to $10 million. But we got our subdivision through, we did quite well out of it. And I mentioned that in particular because I have a reputation of being a koala killer. <laughs> so I don't think, too many guys would have been, have, has given too much to koalas as what we have. So you look at your, your current portfolio of projects, there's Pimpama City, there's the land subdivision you mentioned. Any interest or prior history in, say, industrial developments or office? No, none. No, why not? Well, first of all, I know what I'm doing. I don't like to go in and think I know nothing about. Having said that, we will be hopefully starting to do some seven storeys and 10 storey buildings fairly soon. But with the experience I now have, I'm game enough to start and take that on. I don't think you make too much out of industrial, to be honest with you. And the, 
work and effort you put into the developments which we do, you know, quite frankly, um, if you buy right and you do the job right, then you can make money out of them. And if you put the effort into, say, doing, say, 50 lots, there's just as much work in doing 50 lots as what there is doing 250 lots. And if I put my mind into doing an industrial development and the work and effort that goes in that, you're not going to get the same return. And say you're doing a, a land subdivision project, what are the most important components that, it, that have to be within that development to attract buyers? Previously we've been going on two types of developments. We've been going on what we call, I shouldn't say that neither, we've been going on um, lower price lots that are sold through marketeers and we do that on a put and call. Those lots have previously been running at something like $250,000 to $275,000 a lot. Then we have what we call our prestige lots and our prestige lots would normally go from $350,000 up to, up to $500,000. But it's hard to find land now. So at the present time, we're anxiously looking for land like most developers are. We can't find land. If we could, we'd like to now um, get more prestige lots because the market at the present time is good for that. However, we can't even get land now for the, for the working man. The average block, 250, 300, very, very hard to find land. Just on the current market, where are you seeing, you've mentioned some, some challenges there, where are you seeing opportunities? Let's have a look at the economy. The, the economy, as far as I can see, is in tatters, actually. It's an it's a economy that has the haves and the have-nots. Those who have are doing particularly well, people like Bunnings. Uh, our own land was selling 275 a lot six months ago. Now we're getting 295 300 for our lots. Car dealers can't do any better than what they're doing. You get more money now for your used car today and what you could have done 12 months ago. This is crazy stuff, really. It's crazy. Jewelers, you know, they're, they're making a bonanza. Jewelers are. And with job, job Seeker and Job Start, I think it is Job yep, Starter. Job Keeper, yeah. You know, these people are doing quite well. What worries me is the forgotten people, the real heroes of this pandemic, are quite frankly, the farmers. The farmers can't get people to pick their mangoes or their strawberries. They're forgotten. How about these people, you know, who have had restaurants and coffee shops and put, what, 10 years or 15 years into building a business? Unfortunately, they may not never recover some of those people. And the economy, the way things are at the present time, who knows? I tend to think it's time for caution. So anything we'll be doing, we'll be putting a toe in the water just testing the market and taking it month by month. I think that's what we've got to do because all this debt we've got, sooner or later, it has to be repaid. Now, how long is that going to take before they put the screws on? It's going to be six months, 12 months. I don't know, but it will happen. Just on that, have you seen any early signs of market distress amongst the other developers here on the coast? You know, the Gold Coast is actually booming. I've, I've never seen a better market than what there is here at the Gold Coast at the present time. Uh, forgive me for saying so, but you guys come from Melbourne, your market's not too red hot down there. But up here on the Gold Coast, they're buying, believe it or not, houses sight unseen. That's how red hot the market is. And no, I haven't seen too much stress up here at all, actually. 
everything seems to be rolling along quite well. Um, those, for instance, you come back to the shopping centre, those people who looked after tenants during their bad times, during the middle of that crisis, well, there's a lot of vacancies, particularly in surface paradise, but I, I tend to blame the landlords there. When you close down, for instance, hairdressing salons and gymnasiums, and you close down, for instance, taverns is another one, they just, those people have been closed down, how do you expect them to pay rent when they've just had to close their doors through no fault of their own? So when the, you see these various vacancies, I tend to think, well, you, you've had a landlord that expects you to pay the rent and you've got no income. And that's where they've made the mistake. So Norm, I want to ask you, you've been on the coast developing now for 60 years. You would have seen some high profile identities come and go during that time. What's kept you consistently uh, within the business sector, you know, out there developing projects when so many others have, have come and gone? Uh, well, to answer that, I think I mentioned a little while ago that when I had that partnership, then we took off like a rocket. But I've always had the safety of my bank in those early days behind me. The National Bank has been very, very kind to me. I had an overdraft going back oh, a long, long time ago, a million dollar overdraft. I wouldn't know how many times I've exceeded that overdraft. They, they've always been there for me. They are even today. I, we don't borrow anymore, but we have money there, uh, obviously for them to, um, uh, to handle as it were. But as, as time has gone on, uh, we've grown quite large and so uh, for that reason there's no projects that we won't be able to take on if we see there's the potential there. Uh, a lot of other developers, A, don't know what they're doing. You're here on the Gold Coast at the present time. You know every person on the Gold Coast is a developer, did you know that? <laughs> Fill up your car full of petrol, he's a developer. Someone's got something going but a lot of them don't know what they're doing. And for that reason, you get a lot of people who come in and they just don't know, and they pay too much for their site, and they borrow up to the hilt. And next thing you know, of course, they've gone belly up. In particular, I think the 1980s and 1990s displayed that. What, what did you see? What, what sort of excess did you see? Well, you seem to know, you know, you know, when they get going here, you seem to know, once it was called the White Shoe Brigade, but anybody who comes up here, you know, that has the two-tone shoes and wears a lot of bling, hang on now, <laughs> you know, you know, this bloke's out to impress you. Let me be careful here. I swim with sharks every day. I love it. I can't wait to get going of a morning, you know. I love my job so much. And I love the people I meet, and I just love what I do. And have you seen the, the Gold Coast change from, say, a, a small village when you grew up to, to now? And then what do you see the future? Do you see it becoming a, a major city more so than it is already? Well, it's not going the way which I'd like to see it go, to be honest with you. As I said a little while ago, you can't buy land now because the state government will not zone the land. So what we're seeing more and more is we're seeing high-rise coming in. Look at this. We're seeing now more and more uh, high-rise developments coming in into the Gold Coast, into the residential areas. It started with duplex coming into the strictly residential areas. Now Chevron Island's got high-rise going on Chevron Island. Now they're building in Hedges Avenue high-rise. 
Well, this is only because we cannot get land now to continue to develop. So yes, it's changed. We built the first three houses in Ashmore, believe it or not, all that many years ago. Go out to Ashmore out there, God. There's not, not a vacant block of land as you would probably know. But we can't keep going unless the state government starts to release some land. We've just looked at the site a few days ago. Beautiful land. Land that we could do very, very well out of that land. Land that would be close to Pimpermar City and the future railway station. However, it's owned uh, not a strategic plan. You can't even go to the Gold Coast City Council and have an interview about that because it's out of the council's hands. It's strictly state government. So we're not, we're not going anywhere. Just on the on the local council, the GCCC, have you found them in, in terms of dealing with, I mean, some people don't like Tate and they're, they're out, the others, have, based on, on his recent re-election, the majority support him. How have you found dealing with the, the local council? Well, I, I've been fairly fortunate because we had a good councillor, Councillor Gates, and when we were in all that trouble, as it were, trying to develop a swamp, and uh, people said, oh, this is impossible to do this and that and everything else, because we work with very, very good consultants. Councillor Gates was there for us. And uh, now we've got a new councillor up there, Mark Hamill. I've got an appointment with him on Friday, I think it is. However, he seems like quite a good guy. I don't have much to do with Tom, to be honest with you. But you know, there are the rules and regulations. What we would normally do and what we do do, if we are right on something, we are right. If council knock us back, we go to court. And one year, I think we spent one and a half million dollars in court, but we won in the finish. And uh, there was another issue where the Gold Coast City Council maintained that I had a possum on one of my sites, sorry, a koala bear on one of my sites in a tree. And anyhow, cut a long story short, we had to go up to the courthouse steps on that one and then the council caved in on that. There's another subdivision which we did. There was a dead tree, would you believe, on the site, it was right in the middle of where we we're going to build a road. The council said the, what was it, the, uh, I forget now the name of the particular bird. He travels in a radius of five kilometres or something, but typical Rick's luck, they think he was actually nesting in my tree. So we had to tr prove to the council he wasn't. The powerful owl it was, the powerful owl. Anyhow, there again, a bit of good Rick's luck. We had a very, very windy weekend and the tree blew over. <laughs> so we saved a bit of money there. Now we don't normally, we, we, we talk to the council. We have the very best consultants. And if talk doesn't work, then we go to court straight away. What are the biggest issues other than land supply, do you think, in the central Gold Coast region? Well, you find this strange as far as I'm concerned as a developer. You know, the Gold Coast City Council's got land absolutely everywhere. You go up to that northern region where we're developing now, you know, they've got land up there that is all virgin bushland that is future parkland. I see the council, you know, spending money on all sorts of things. Well, I think we just had the Blue Bridge or something or other here, and all sorts of crazy things, you know a lot of artwork and this and that. What the people are screaming for, they're screaming for more parkland, more open space, 
That's what we've got to have. The land's there. Why not develop the land? It's not going to cost a fortune to build parks in the city. Why not start and do that? What we've got now, you, you would have noticed even by now, Goldcast is getting very congested. It's getting basically, it's too tight. I don't want the Gold Coast to look like Singapore or Hong Kong. I want the Gold Coast to have the open space and the parks, as it were, that one would expect of a wonderful city as the Gold Coast is. In terms of the actual developments that you do and, and your projects, how, how has the process changed over time? Have you seen construction costs rise? Obviously they've risen, but have they risen to unsustainable levels, do you think? No, what has risen, believe it or not, are the charges. The construction costs, you know, they battle amongst themselves to get the job. And we have very, very good contractors. However, if we develop a block of land, one block of land, we pay the Gold Coast City Council $29,500 infrastructure charge. Then uh, we picked up some checks today. The, go the federal government they get their GST on the block of land that I've just sold. That particular one was $23,500. Then, on top of that, the Kyoko City Council charge you, believe it or not, rates. The rates on the block of land that I've just sold was 2,000, sorry, the land tax on that block of land, the land tax, the state government, was $2,200. The particular estate about which I'm speaking was three rural lots, three rural lots. And in a year, maybe, just maybe, the rates may have been a, maybe $1,000 and no land tax. Now, the land tax is about between $2,000, $2,500 per lot. You work it out for 207 lots. Now, what you've got to also work out now not only are we paying the rates and the land tax, the GST, the infrastructure charges, you go into the Gold Coast City Council and if you do a, what's called a stage development, we don't by the way, we do the whole lot, then if you have an alteration or the, or the plan that you've, there's a fee for that. There's a fee for absolutely bloody everything. And it's because of those fees, it's pushing up the price of the land. You would have seen in New South Wales, they're moving towards a land tax and stamp duty model. Uh, you can select one of the two. You can stay with the stamp duty or move to the annual land tax. What are your thoughts on it? Well, we were talking about the economy a little while ago. I do believe that those people who have done it tough, I think they should not be paying any payroll tax. I don't think they should be paying any land tax because land taxes are wrought the same as what payroll tax is a wrought. I've got a meeting with the land tax people on Monday and they can charge anything they bloody like on your land tax. The way they do that is they just value your property, as it were, being X amount. Now you can go to court on this if you want to because what they valued your land at is unreasonable. However, the government has altered it. You can go to court, you can win the court case, but they've got the right to revalue it the following year. So what do they do? They put it back up to what it was. What do you do? Keep going back to court. Now, the land tax is a rort. They should not be um, using the land tax formula that they've got. The people who are doing the land tax, quite frankly, uh, <coughs> are ardent socialists. So they don't like developers anyhow, so you can imagine the struggle we have on land tax. And the same thing would apply, I should imagine, 
in New South Wales. We had another developer, Theo Onesfrui from Sydney, who said that the land tax department should be sacked and they should actually use external people to do it who have no vested interest. What do you think of that? Well, that's, that's a, I agree totally with him. We've just had a taxation audit. Now you're talking about rorts. I'll tell you the biggest rort of the lot. The people who did the taxation audit on me, they are very decent people. Let me make it quite clear. However, the system is all wrong. The audit went on for 18 months. During that time, my accountant passed away. So I was left without an accountant even at that particular time. So when the audit is basically finished, then they said to me, look, what you can do, you can go to the committee if you like. It's seven people apparently on this committee with the taxation department that will consider your position. I said, well, that, that sounds pretty fair. Who decides the people? And I said, oh, the taxation department does. Now you figure it out yourself with the land tax. How do you reckon it would go? Now you ask yourself, how do you reckon it would go? It's not gonna go too good, is it? They're not going to give it to an outside group, just like the taxation department don't give it to an outside group. It's gonna be held internally. Now we should do away with payroll tax. We've got to do away with land tax. We've got to start now. The money is better in my pocket, your pocket, than what it is with the government. You want to start and build an economy? Make the free enterprise system work by giving more money back to the individual. You mentioned off camera earlier that you like to visit your developments at least once, sometimes twice a day. How important is that when you see some developers in interstate, they may travel once or twice a month. How important is it to go and see what's going on in one of your projects every day? Well, uh, that's the difference between my, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to skide here. That's the difference between my developments and somebody else's. I'm there twice a day. To my knowledge, no cheating goes on in my developments. Let me come back to when I first got started spec building. Let me come back there. I remember I was building three houses together in a line. And I got to the job site early in the morning before they pour the concrete. And they were starting to pour, the mesh is in there, all set, ready to go. They're waiting on the concrete truck. So I inspected, yes, go ahead and do the pour because the concrete truck was on its way. I don't know what happened, but I had to go back to the job site. Guess what the concreters had done? They moved the mesh from that site to the one next door, and they're going to pour the concrete on the slab without any mesh. Now, you wonder why I go to the job site <laughs> twice a day? That taught me a very, very good lesson. Reflecting on your career, what would you say is the, the best deal you've ever done and the worst deal? Well, the worst deal I ever did was I was just getting started basically, and I moved a house for removal from Surface Paradise to Southport. That was a huge mistake. Uh, I moved it over there, put it up on the stilts, and then I had to rewire the house, and the plumbing wasn't much good, believe it or not. And then it had to be repainted, and there was damage on the way, and the council came along and wanted a, a hallway widened out, and oh my goodness gracious. Anyhow, at the end of the day, I lost a few hundred pounds. Well, I don't think I've ever lost any money on a real estate deal since then. That taught me the lesson, and I'll never do another house for removal. And the best deal I've ever done is Pippa Marsetti. 
you've got to go and have a look at this Pimper Marcy. You've got to go and have a look at it. You, you want me to say you're up for the best shopping centre in Australia. That's what it is. So we're seeing a lot of shopping centres, uh, malls as they call them in the US, start to close. I think around half of the malls that were there in 2015 are now open now. So with your development, your shopping centre development at Pimpermar City, what are the most successful components you need there or in any shopping centre development today? It's a combination of many things. First of all, you've got to start with the motor car. The 2.5 metre width is just not big enough. You open the door of your car, you hit the guy next door. You've got to have your, your car park width. It's got to be at least 2.7 to 2.8 wide. You've got to have the shade covers. Then after that, your tenancy mix. You, can't, you cannot have a shopping centre unless you've got a Coles or a Woolies. You must have a Coles or a Woolies. We've got Coles, but we've also got Aldi. Aldi's a little gem, it really is a gem, Aldi. So with your tenancy mix, you've got to be able to have that mix that the people call come there because you've got what they need. Now we've got Chemist Warehouse, number one. We've got Best and Less, great tenant. You've got to have a bank, we've got the National Bank. We've got to then have the other services. You've got to have, for instance, you've got to have a barber, person to do your nails, you've got to have a butcher, you've got to have a bottle shop, We've got a tavern and a bottle shop, by the way. So the tenancy mix, you know, is not only strong, but it's essential. Then you've got to have the nice big wide walkways and you've got to make it basically it's an experience to come to your shopping centre. And what we've done is a lot of people just walk around out there because of the gardens and the way in which we've landscaped as well. So for that reason, they come out there for their petrol, they come out there for their Hungry Jacks or their Kentucky Fried. We've got my car out there to get, get your tyres done. Whether they like me or not, they've got to go to Pimpermar City because Pimpermar City's got what they're looking for. There'll be developers all across Australia watching this interview. What would be your, say, two or three biggest pieces of advice for them? Two or three? Well, I started very, very humble because I started with absolutely nothing. I think a big thing for me is that we, we buy land, we buy land, we buy cash unconditional. After we've done uh, a, a bit of a search prior to an auction, whatever that may be, if we do buy, we'll buy maybe 30 days due diligence if we can't get in to see the council in the meantime. That's a big thing for us, cash unconditional. Then secondly, we've got very, very good contacts now after all of these years. You know, the surveyor, I'm 85 now, the surveying firm that I use today is the same surveyors that I used 60 years ago. Same firm, different people of course, but we've grown with them. You know, I've never banked any other bank but National Bank. So basically, I rely a lot on the people over the years that I've done business with that I trust them and they trust me. We do certain other things that a lot of people don't do. If a person sent, uh, makes a tender and he sends his, send his uh, monthly account in, we pay straight away. Most of the times we don't even wait till the end of the month. Now you ask yourself, why would you do that? Well, the money's there, number one. Number two, if you're looking for that contractor, you want him to do some work for you, and I'm looking for a contractor, I want him to work for me. Who do you reckon he's going to work for? He's going to work for me, because I pay. 
That's a very, very big thing. And I suppose the last thing is that as far as uh, development is concerned, it's how you treat your staff. Uh, my girl Kay, you've spoken to her on the phone today. I don't know how long she's been with me, maybe 30, 35 years or something like that. I suppose she's been there for me. Lee's been with me, the guy has just rung me just now. He's been with me over 50 years. He's getting a bit old too. But my staff are very, very loyal. I can go away somewhere. And it's difficult in the business which I am in uh, to trust a lot of people. But the two people I do with business with, I trust. And because I can trust them, that means to say I can become more successful. Now, you're still a young man. So, oh, absolutely. So what do you do outside of work to keep yourself busy? What are your hobbies or interests? Well, see, I can't wait for you to leave, actually, because I'm playing poker tonight. I'm going to get the poker game ready. So I play poker twice a week. I've got a motorhome and I travel around Australia in my motorhome. I don't like sleeping in a strange bed. So we've been around Australia twice. As a matter of fact, we've just come back from Lennox Heads only a few days ago. And I like doing that. I used to play golf until such times as I had a, a, a back, but on my back was basically almost at the stage where I couldn't walk. But I, I had the best surgeon in the world which is the guy that operated on Tiger Woods, by the way. One of the surgeons operated on him and did my back, Matthew Scott Young. I'll tell you a funny story. A developer can name the streets in his development after, after anybody or name it anything you like. You might want to call it Kookaburra Drive, whatever it is. I don't. I call my streets after well-known Gold Coast identities and people that have looked after me. I named the street after Matthew Scott Young. But the funny part about that, it was one of my developments in Brisbane. Anyhow, it was Matthew Scott Young Drive. So it was all approved by the council. We put the sign up, but then the people in the street protested because the name was too long. <laughs> so, however, we've just done another subdivision down here, and now we've named it Scott Young Drive. So he got his name up there because he operated on my back. Um, you have to wait nearly a year to see him, but we, we name our streets after old pioneers. Uh, there was, uh, and certain other circumstances, by the way, there was a policeman here that was shot in the face uh, when, during a bank, bank robbery. I just can't quite think of his name now. In any case, I named a street after him. You know, his mother goes there every year on his birthday. Do you know that? And on top of that too, she's written me the most beautiful letter because I named a street after her son. I'm trying to think of his name. I can't quite think of it. Um, I named a street after um, Maury Pierce, Colonel Maury Pierce. He got, a, he, got, he got a military cross. That's the sort of thing which I like to do but you wouldn't know what the Rick's Luck has done. The Gold Coast City Council has stopped me from doing it. This last development we've done, they won't be doing it anymore because they think it's a bit of a rort, and I suppose it is. <laughs> My final question is, what's next for Norm Ricks over the next two, three, five, ten years? Oh, a bit of the same, I think. But we're going to start now. We're looking at changing direction. We can't get land now for our subdivisions. 
So we're going to start and change direction. I'll probably start and do seven-storey building. We'll put our toe in the water there, see how it goes. Hopefully we might look at doing NDIS, some NDIS, but that's in the infancy. So I don't know how that's going to go. We might do a shandy there. We might do a part of the building for NDIS. And the balance of the building uh, will probably be units that we'll sell because as I said, we're going to be right next door to a railway station, so they should sell quite quickly. And if that particular building is successful, we might do two or three or more of those type of buildings to fill in until such times as the more land is released, because we want to keep going. That's what we want to do. At my age, I'm certainly not going to stop. Great note to end on, Norm. Absolute pleasure to have you on this afternoon. Thanks for your time. No, my pleasure to be with you.